For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So, yeah, we've been uh, working our way through this book of John, and we're in a section where Jesus is, uh, his popularity has fallen considerably. Uh, He has been a controversial, sort of polarizing figure. He's particularly been confrontational with the religious authorities, mostly the Pharisees, also the Sadducees, um, who were the religious rulers of his day. And he's had this polarizing effect to the point where they pretty much just want to kill him. And so in the section that we're in, he's doing this guerrilla preaching. He's just popping up in weird places where there's lots of people giving a teaching and then they like mobilize their forces to try to like go and capture him or discredit him. He's doing this uh, at the festival of booths, at the temple, and the Pharisees are just desperate, you know, to, at any moment, you know, the report would come in, Jesus is teaching in the square and they would be like, let's go, you know, and they would try to get there and and trap him, kill him, discredit him, whatever it is that they can do, they're pretty much willing at this point because they got to get rid of this guy. That's their thinking. And so we get to John 8. We did the first 11 verses of John 8 last week. We get to John 8, 12, and Jesus is, again, confronting them. And he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And the thing that, you know, we keep seeing statements of Jesus that are like this. And the thing that we keep wanting to look at here is look at how Jesus is the centrality of his own message. This is not like other preachers. This is not like other prophets. He says, I and the light of the world. If you follow me, he is not pointing people to God like a prophet would. He is pointing people to himself like God would. And this is not lost on those people. And the the offense of this is having this polarizing effect. Because when you get up and say, I am the light of the world, you neither need to be the light of the world or you're a problem for everybody, right? And so we see this, we break it down. He says, you know, think, put yourself in the audience, the original audience shoes. There is a man in clothing standing in front of you saying, I am the light of the world. And to the audience, what does that mean? You are in darkness. Well, That's not very ingratiating, is it? What does he say? You need to follow me. The implication to the audience, without me, you do not have the light of life. Huh, okay. I will give you the light of life, meaning you can't come out of darkness if you don't follow me. This is the kind of thing that drives you crazy when people are like, Jesus never claimed to be God. It's all over the place. And it has these implications, you know. I think it's a very reasonable thing to be in the audience watching this person say this and have this question pop up in your mind in a big way. Who does Jesus think he is? 
That's the relevant question. It's the most relevant question. Well, maybe the only more relevant question. It's not who do we think he is, but who is he? That's the most important question there is according to the Bible. Who do you say that Jesus is? And so the Pharisees, you know, while I'm not super sympathetic to them, uh, I kind of understand, you know, that's the question they ask here in hearing this, right? Verse 13, the Pharisees say to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I am come from or where I'm going. They're saying, you know, you're making these claims about yourself, but that's like your opinion. What's the truth? Where's, the, where's your testimony? What witness, what evidence, Jesus, do you provide? If you're going to make claims like this, what evidence do you provide? We don't believe you, and we think you're a liar. And Jesus' response is, your opinion doesn't change the facts of who I am. I came from somewhere. I represent something. And I know what it is. And so you're welcome. You know, you can have your opinion about me. But what really matters here is what's true. What is true is the the, the thing that will affect the power and the meaning of what Jesus is saying. He's either telling them the truth. They really need him. They are really dead in their sins. That's one of the things, one of the terms that he's going to use directly in the passage that we're studying. He says, you are dead in your sins without me. They are really wrong to reject his teaching. Or he is falsely putting himself at the apex of all of humanity, all of human history, saying, I am the central thing that all living beings for all time need to concern themselves with because I am the way to eternal life and salvation for everyone. And if that's not true, he's just asserting his delusions in the hope that people will fall for it. It's a fascinating thing. If it's true, it's the most important thing ever. If it's false, it's one of the worst things ever. Because so many people would have fallen prey to this lunatic. He goes on and addresses their question. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it. But I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. He says, you want evidence? Look at my life. Look at how I live. Look at what I do. Look at how God responds to what I do, and look in the scriptures. That's all the evidence that you need. This is truth, he's saying. And the Pharisees... Their problem is, is that they are seeing what they want to see. They're offended by him. He stands against their preconceptions of what God or the Messiah would be like. They're thinking, you know, we're super holy. We've devoted our whole life to religion, 
to the rituals and the traditions of our fathers. When God shows up, he's going to come to us first and be like, I love you guys so much. I'm on your team. That's what they are expecting. And he shows up and says, actually, you guys have completely missed the point. We need to be moving toward people who are sinners and loving them and helping them understand that they can be forgiven. And that creates this emotional response in them that causes them to see he must be a false prophet because if he is who he says he is, then we are wrong and we are living and devoting our lives to the wrong thing. And that just can't be true. To agree with Jesus is to admit that they have a very serious problem and that they need his help to change. And that is why, no matter what he does, no matter what miracle, what wonder, what argument, no matter what scripture says, they're not being swayed because they are approaching this emotionally. And Jesus is confronting them with truth. And so when Jesus says they're living in darkness, it completely fits the reality of the situation. If they are unable to see their truth, blinded by their desires, they are groping in the dark, unable to bring their understanding of reality into correspondence with the truth of reality. And they're oblivious to the evidence right in front of them. That's the very definition of what being in darkness is. And he's saying, you guys can't see the truth. Paul, much later in Ephesians, would write this about this dynamic that the human, whole human race is under, right? He says in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, so this is, I say, and I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. The Gentiles, just everybody who's not Jewish in that context, right? Don't walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their heart. Ignorance meaning they don't, they don't know. It's not that they're dumb. It's that they don't have the truth. They don't know the truth. And the hardness of heart being the stubborn reality of, I don't like being told that I'm wrong. I don't want to believe that I'm living for the wrong things and I don't want to face that reality, so I'm going to block the truth, which is what he calls the futility of their thinking. Jesus, on the other hand, is coming at them with an argument rooted in evidence. He says, God has already shown you who I am. My father testifies about who I am. You say that you study Moses, that you study the scriptures. The scriptures say that the Messiah will be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, around first century AD, descendant of David, and the dead are raised and the blind will see. All Old Testament passages that fit perfectly with who Jesus is. Jesus says, you want a witness, you want evidence, you want a testimony about who I am. Look at how what you're seeing in my life corresponds with what is written in the Old Testament. If that's not enough, look at what you've seen me do. 
Look at how the blind can see. Look at how the lame can walk. Look at how the scriptures are fulfilled. Wrestle with the reality that's right in front of you. And for them, it was empirical evidence that God was behind the teachings of Jesus Christ. And this really, I think, in a really powerful way, brings out the emotion of their argument. And it's really easy to miss. But when he says, God is my father, what do they do? They say, where is your father? Now, you might miss this, but you have to remember that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. His adopted father was Joseph. And you can imagine that many people would have been suspicious about that claim. They know that Mary got pregnant before she was married. But that's all they know. And this comes up later in the passage as well, where they start pointing to, they call him the son of fornication. And so he's, listen to the, the follow the, and track with what's happening here. They're saying, how dare you say these things without evidence? He says, my father has given you all the evidence that you need. And they're like, oh, yeah, who is your father? They're just emotionally lashing out at him. And look what he does. He hits them with the facts. He says, you don't know me or my father. That person that you're trying to insult me with actually is not my dad. And you don't know me. You don't know where I've come from. But if you, he says, you, not, neither, uh, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He's saying, I'm the perfect representation of my father, and it's not Joseph. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught them in the temple, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So it's another one of these things where he just sort of melts back into the audience, and they're like, ah, you know. And then right next thing that John puts in the passage is he pops up again. And it's another one of these confrontations, 821. He says to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. I mean, it's hard to imagine saying anything more offensive. He's saying you're going to die in your sin without me. How would we respond to that? He goes on, and in 23, he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It's crazy. It's like, you know, one of those things where you think, oh, well, you know, he said, I will die. you will die in your sins without me. And you're like, man, I bet he regretted saying that that poignantly. And I bet they really reacted to that. And then he comes back and says it three more times, right? <laughs> you will die in your sin without me. He says to these people, can you imagine having a flesh and bone human being in front of you saying you need me or you will die in your sin? How offensive. How outrageous. It's really, I think, not that hard to imagine the emotions this would invoke. 
from the standpoint of a lot of us here haven't always been Christians. And, you know, if you're not a believer here and you're sitting here hearing what I'm saying and you're like, yeah, I choose lunatic, right? And I agree and I am offended. I can't believe this guy. How has he been so popular for so long? You know, many of us felt exactly the same way. That is the most human initial response to the teaching of Jesus Christ. What, what would happen would be if you are offended by this, you are starting to understand what it means. That's the truth. Because there is an offense to it. It says that we are not able to stand on our own before God. And we understand how it feels to hear that and understand that for the first time. I must have heard this a hundred times before it started to make sense in a, in a deeper way about my standing before God. But the first thing I got was God. I used to, I used to say, well, okay, so if God has a problem with me, that's sort of God's problem because God made me. And if he doesn't like what he made, that's kind of on him. That's what we call futility of our thinking and the hardness of our heart in me. But if, you're, if you are offended by this, like the Pharisees were, that's because you are starting to understand. And then the next question that you just really have to wrestle with, don't just be offended and, and walk away, but ask yourself, okay, but what if it's true? If it's true, then it's super important. It might still be offensive, but it's so important and it's so in another category if it's true. And it's, it's important that, it, that he would tell us that. If he's the only way to salvation, the only way to eternal life, the only way to fulfill the destiny that God created us for, if it's the only way, then we would, want, we would need to know that. Even as we wrestle with all the implications of what that means and how it works, it would, it would be so important for us to know. William Booth, who was one of the founders of the Salvation Army, uh, created this painting. It's somewhat famous. Uh, and it's, it's sort of a picture of, he meant it as a critique against Christians who are kind of caught up in the cares of the world, right? And so this is a picture of, you know, people without God are sort of drowning in this storm. They're surely going to perish and die, but there's, there's salvation at hand. And he painted this to show, you know, people are doing all these other things. They've been saved, and they're doing all these other things, you know, rather than helping. People are dying all around them, and they're, you know, lifting weights and, you know, having romantic conversations. And he didn't mean this as like, those things are evil, but he meant it as, you know, how would you prioritize your life if you could see the reality of the spiritual picture that, that Christ is painting for us? And I brought it up, not so much to make that point, but to show, you know, in the picture, there are people who are out there. There are people who are trying to rescue that see the reality of the situation. But you know what Jesus is saying here is none of those things. He's pointing to these guys, and he's saying, you aren't even willing to accept that you're drowning. You're ignoring the fact that you are in peril and I'm reaching my hand out to you saying, I am the light of the world. I will give you the light of life. Will you take my hand? And they're saying, we would rather kill you. 
How dare you say we are drowning? And that's the situation that this illustrates from that perspective. Is if you're drowning in the peril of the world and God is reaching his hand out to you saying, I want to rescue you from this. How important is it that we come to the realization that we're on the brink of death and destruction? Again, so offensive, so hard to hear. And this isn't my opinion or our opinion. This is the teachings of Christ. And that's who we need to wrestle with on this. Jesus goes on in 828 and he says, when you lift up the son of man, you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. I find that very interesting too. He, look at how offensive he is being. Look at how direct he is being. And yet, there are people who are reading their Bible. They're looking at Jesus. They're looking at how he's living his life. They're looking at the miracles that he's done. And they're hearing him say, you are dead in your sins without me. And many of them are like, I agree. I agree and I want to accept. I think that's really interesting. You know, if you're offended by what Jesus is saying here, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, how dare he say he is the only way? How dare he say that I need to be saved? Do you know how many people in the world are so much more morally bankrupt than I am? Do you know how terrible people are and you want to point the finger at me I will stand on my own two feet I will go my own way and I will face what consequences may come because I'm going to live my life my own way again we totally understand that I certainly was there for years and we don't we don't judge that we we acknowledge that this is how you wrestle with who Jesus is. But the thing that we would plead with you, if you are offended, the question that we really would ask you to wrestle with is, how is your own way really working out? Because the only difference between you and me is that I came to realize my own way sucks. And I'm making a mess of it. I seem to only hurt the people that I love the most. I seem to not be able to be the kind of person that I want to be. I seem to not be able to really create real change. I just seem like I'm on a treadmill living my life over and over with different versions of the same mistake. And feeling empty and hollow inside and like I'm living for the wrong things, but I don't know what's right. That's the place where we all come before we take God's offer. And that's the thing that, you know, our 
scriptures, our Bible tells us is that everybody wrestles with that without God. We may have times where we're feeling pretty good about things. You know, we might have moments where we think we finally found the answer and the meaning of life. We found a person who makes us whole. We had kids and that's who we are. We got, finally got the career that we want or the house that we want or the level on World of Warcraft that we've been striving for. <laughs> like whatever it is that, you know, this thing, but we go and then we get those things and then we go back to emptiness again. And so many of us have tried so many things, and, that, and we're here to say we are not perfect people. We still have a lot of growth and a, lot, a long way to go. We still struggle, but we are moving. We are on the path, and real change is happening, not only in our lives, but in the lives of people that we get to interact with every day. And it's not because of us. It's because of him. Are you allowing emotion to rule your life? Or are you looking for real truth? That's the question you need to wrestle with here. Are you just letting the feelings of the situation move you erratically back and forth? Or are you asking yourself, what if my feelings are not as important as reality. So many come to believe as they sit under Jesus's really controversial teaching. And they do this because they saw the truth that they were blind, living in darkness. They needed to be told that in order to come to that place. They realized, recognized, they could not come into the light on their own. And they did the thing, the hardest thing for any of us to do. They set aside their pride. They said, I cannot stand on my own. My own doesn't work. And they took God up on his offer to make them whole and come into their lives despite the fact that their feelings were telling them, this is ridiculous. That's how this works. Think about, that. Think about it this way. What are the things that really keep us from coming to God, that really keep us from embracing him? It's at its core, it's an unwillingness to be honest with ourselves about our failure. We can look into our lives and we can see a litany of ruined and broken relationships. We need to see that we are selfish, that yes, there, are, there is a part of us that where our intentions are good. We want to be generous, but are we really generous? We're selfish. We want to be humble. We have the inner sense that, you know, to be prideful is bad. And we would like to be humble. But are we really living out humility? We are broken. We are this fearfully and wonderfully made creation. 
created in the image of the all-powerful God of the universe, knit together in your mother's womb by the hand of God for great and noble purposes, and yet fundamentally flawed in an almost irreversible way. All this glory and wonder and the intellect and the heart and the mind and the nobility of the human experience. But then using all of that to bring each other down, to put ourselves first and to get what we want before we're willing to give to other people. We want to forgive. We would love to be a forgiving person. Oh, please help me let go of this bitterness. We know it's destroying us. We know it. And so we tell ourselves, today is the day I'm going to forgive. But it doesn't work out. It doesn't take. We are conflicted. We are intransigent stubbornly clinging to the things that we know are killing us and relatively hopeless as we get older that things will really change. That is what Jesus calls living in darkness. That's it. That's his diagnosis. And this is also called being enslaved to your feelings where you make your emotional sense the predominant guide of your life and that doesn't work John 8 31 so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him as they're coming in what is his advice to them they're saying we do believe you he says if you continue in my word then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Isn't that interesting? My word, my teachings, my scripture. Let the truth of scripture guide you, not your feelings. Let what God has said about the world that he creates be the predominant reality in which your decision-making process occurs. And you will be my disciples. A disciple is just a learner. It's just a follower. It's someone who puts the truth into action. It's not someone who feels the truth. It's not someone who, all of a sudden, God miraculously makes your feelings align with truth. It's that you decide to subjugate your feelings to what you believe is true. That's how you become a disciple is you begin putting the truth of God into practice and he says that is the only way you will experience real freedom. Real freedom. So if we put it up there and think about it this way, feelings versus truth, what do our feelings say? Our feelings say God is restrictive and oppressive. Why would I want to put myself under the authority of anyone else, even if it is God, when I can do what I feel when I can be true to myself. That's what our feelings say. Jesus says living for Christ is the only true freedom. That you're actually stuck on a treadmill, getting nowhere, living by your feelings, and it has enslaved you. And that feeling of oppression and darkness and gloom and like things are never going to change 
is the slavery of living for self. Our feelings lead us in erratic, contradictory directions. If you take a history of the way that you've lived your life, if you're making your decisions based on how you feel, how many times have you felt very strongly that no one should ever do this and then found yourself the next day doing it and being like, actually, this is the right thing to do? How many times has that happened in your life? I can't tell you how many times it's happened in mine. I've come to such strong convictions about what I will never do again, only to find moments later that I was doing it. That's how feelings work. They're very powerful. They're very persuasive. But they don't work. Our feelings don't work. The truth leads us to stable, consistent, eternal life. And what I mean by that is that sounds really boring, I know. Right? You're like, huh? Who wants to be stable? What I'm saying is, is that the course of your life is stable. Not your feelings, not your experience, but you are able to be consistent with what you believe because you have chosen to act on truth rather than the erratic nature of your feelings. And that you will find that you fail, you fail at times to live up to what you thought was true, but what you thought was true hasn't changed. You don't do that thing where you say, well, I would never do this, and then you do it, and then you're like, well, it must be okay. You say, I would never do this. I don't want to do this. This isn't who I want to be. I find myself doing it, and it's still wrong. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me for my sins. I want to be more like you, and I want to be somebody who doesn't do these things anymore, and the way to do that is to agree with God that they are wrong whether I do them or not. And then to plead and grow and continue to put the truth of Jesus' teachings into action and watch as slowly, painfully slowly, we do start to change. And the people around us do as well. Our feelings have us living for the highs and despairing in the lows. One great way you can tell uh, that you're living for feelings is, you know, keep a journal And if you're reading through it and you're like, am I bipolar? (laughs) Look at this. One day, my life is going great and everything is wonderful and I just can't believe how good things are. And then, you know, you fast forward three days and you're like, things have never been worse in my life. (laughs) How does that happen that quickly? And you look at the reasons and they're all relatively, you know, what we would call first world problems usually. You know, we're so easily moved from one place to another emotionally. When you live for truth, you rejoice in the highs and you learn the importance of the lows. You learn how to persevere through the lows and you don't become a masochist who's like, I can't wait for my next low. (laughs) But you become somebody who understands that sometimes I grow more in the lows and the highs are gifts But the lows are just as important because I'm standing on truth. Jesus says in 834, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. 
you will continually be caught on that treadmill. And Jesus is holding out his hand and saying, there's another way. Will you take a step? Will you trust me? I think we need to wrestle with this too because it'd be easy at this point, I think, to walk away from this and hear, okay, so feelings are bad and truth is good. Got it, right? And I don't know if you've been paying attention or not, uh, but uh, I'm a fairly emotional person. And I believe that emotions are good. I believe that emotions are awesome. I love emotions. I used to live for emotions. Now I try to live for truth. My wife and I are very different in this regard. She is a very practical, very analytical person. And uh, we had an experience once. Uh, our son, Logan, he's 16 now, but he was maybe five or six, and he had a really bad day at school. And unsurprisingly, Logan was a very emotional young man. He was very competitive. He was very easily angered, and he was uh, sad. And he was ruled by his emotions. And my wife was observing this. And uh, she comes to bed one night, and she's like, I just had the greatest talk with Logan. And I'm like, really? What was it? Tell me about it. And she was like, well, he had a bad day, and he was really, he was crying, and he was just really sort of moping about all the you know, sad things. And I told him, he just needs to take those feelings and stuff them way down. <laughs> that feelings are the enemy, and that you just need to take control. I, unfortunately, I am not kidding. Like, that is literally the advice that my beautiful, amazing wife gave to our five-year-old son. And I, I looked at her, and I, I, and I literally said, you're fired. <laughs> you, bring, you bring a lot to the table, but when it comes to emotion, that should be my, my thing. And I got, I got out of bed, and I went over to my son's room, you know, and I said, hey, buddy, you know that talk you just had with your mom? <laughs> he was like, yeah. And I was like, well, mom and I were talking about it, and we think you should delete that. <laughs> and he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, look, you're like me. You feel things very strongly. And that can be hard. That can create challenges in your life. But it can also be a great blessing. The thing is, is that you put the truth first. The truth comes before your feelings. And then what begins to happen is as you pursue the truth, as you let the truth guide your life, occasionally this wonderful thing will happen where your feelings coincide with the truth. And it just feels great to be living according to the truth. And that's something that you don't want to lose, that you, you want to... You want to experience and you want others because people will be drawn to that. Frankly, your dad has made a decent living by being an emotional person about the truth. And it's something that God has given you that not, is not an enemy. It's an ally. As long as it's not above the truth. And he was like, that sounds more right than what mom said. <laughs> And I was like, good boy. 
Now, I love telling stories like this. I don't tell you the ones where she's totally right and I'm off my rocker. <laughs> we'll have her teach here sometime and she can do that. The other thing I want to close with is just this, this idea of, I think there's a lesson here to learn about how to share with others as well. Because when you look at what Jesus is doing and you're saying like, do I have to do that? I mean, do I need to go to work and say, hello, cube mate, do you know that you're dead in your sins? (laughs) That's, that's, we've seen a lot of that. We've seen what, what, you know, how horribly ineffective and misrepresentative people are who approach sharing with others. And we know that sharing can be absolutely terrifying. But the thing that I want to encourage you with is that boldness is needed. That most of us here, the vast majority of us here, could do with being quite a bit more bold. There may be one or two of us here that need to draw back just a little bit, but that's not true with most of us. And I think as we get older, it gets harder. Some of us were a lot more bold when we were young, and we think about it in terms of, well, I was really excited, and you know, but the reality is, is the risk was a lot lower. When you're in high school, when you're in college, the turnover in your life is incredible. People are coming in and going out. You know, every quarter your classes change. Probably every quarter your job changes. <laughs> every year your living situation changes. Then you get a career and you get a mortgage and you get kids. And it's like your neighbors are going to be your neighbors for half, maybe forever or for a really long time. And your coworkers are going to be your coworkers. And I think that causes us to start calculating things differently. And we become a lot more conservative. And I think we need to stand against that. We need to agree that, you know, having real conversations with other adults is something that we need to do. And that we need to step outside of ourselves And if we're having a conversation with someone and we're trying to talk to them about spiritual things, and if the name Jesus Christ doesn't come up, that we're not really sharing about who he is. That we need to get to the reality of both the good news and the bad news when we share with people. And of course it has to be accompanied with love. It does nobody any good just to lay meaningless platitudes out there and to assert, you know, to, we, were, we let the, 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 the feeling that we have that we need to be sharing build up like a gas and then we vent it on somebody with some really canned statement and feel like, oh, glad that's over. No, we need to be engaged in the community. We need to be involved with people. We need to let them know and let them see how much we love them. And we need to be bold. We need to do those things together. And rejection is a real possibility for sure. That definitely will happen no matter how loving you are and no matter how bold you are, no matter how well you walk that balance, look at how the Pharisees respond. But look at the many who come to faith as well. And the other thing, of course, that's different is unlike Jesus, we are not pointing people to ourselves. You and I are not the answer to all the world's problems. We've just met who is. 
And others need to know him. And if there were others who could see who he really is and see the futility of their thinking, they will respond. Jesus tells us they will respond. And so that's the thing I, I guess I want to say is I think most of us could stand to take quite a few more risks in this area. Let's pray. God, you said that if we know you, we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. And we just ask that uh, if there's anyone here that feels stuck and like they don't know you and they're on that treadmill and they're at that point where uh, they know that uh, what they're doing is not working, we just pray that they would hear you knocking on their door, the door of their heart, and uh, they, would, they would take that step toward you. And we pray for the rest of us, God, that you will give us boldness, that you will help us to model your grace, your love, your care for others, and that we can also take a stand on the truth. We know that it's not popular. We know that many are offended. And, but the reality is, is many don't know what you have really said. And if they could understand, and if we could help with that, God, it would be such a great privilege to be involved in being your ambassador to bring light into the darkness. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.